You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Unsealed documents show that Jeffrey Epstein was offering advice to Ghislaine Maxwell as late as 2015, despite her lawyer's statement that the British socialite had no contact with the disgraced financier in a decade. Maxwell's in a federal jail in Brooklyn after her arrest this month on charges of engaging with Epstein in a sex trafficking scheme. She's trying to stop the disclosure of documents that include her sworn testimony in a civil case. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who's been covering the Maxwell case. Pat, give us the background on these documents. So this is a prolonged, involved story. It goes back to there was a young woman named Virginia Roberts Dufre, and she says that when she was 16 years old, she encounters Ghislaine Maxwell at Mar-a-Lago. Her dad works there as a maintenance man. He gets her a job at the spa. She's handing out towels, and a lovely woman, British woman, comes up to her and sees her reading a book about massage and offers her a job working for this wealthy man who wants to, looking for a private masseuse. She said she was 16 years old at the time. So uh, she goes to the mansion. To, it turns out she's introduced to Jeffrey Epstein. And he immediately, and Maxwell, she alleges, forced her to perform sex acts with the two of them present. And she became a sex slave, she alleges. And, and that was in... 1999-2000. So then uh, she ends up trying to join a lawsuit with victims of Epstein after Epstein gets his secret plea deal. And she makes some comments about Maxwell publicly. And Maxwell comes back and issues a press release in January 2015. She makes statements and says that this woman's a liar. It provokes or prompts a defamation lawsuit Jufre sues Maxwell for defamation. And Maxwell gave a testimony under oath, questioned about this sex trafficking. Jufre was very, very aggressive. Um, her lawyers included David Boyes and this guy Bradley Edwards and Ed Pottinger in Florida. And they really went to question Maxwell at people that worked at the Epstein home in Palm Beach, all kinds of allegations. So Jufre is alleged was forced to have sex that she was trafficked to these famous men, including alleged princes, possibly Prince Andrew. She's named him and uh, Maxwell denies it. So what happens is this stuff was all settled right on the eve of trial. The 2015 lawsuit got settled right before trial and then the documents were under seal. So how did all those sealed documents get unsealed before Jeffrey Epstein's suicide. But after Epstein gets prosecuted, the Miami Herald goes to ask, why is this sealed? And the uh, Court of Appeals, Second Circuit Court of Appeals, directed that the judge who had originally had the, the lawsuit didn't properly seal it. He shouldn't have properly sealed everything. It was improper to keep all the documents from the public. And uh, so that's how we get to this point. The circuit orders last August, they order all these documents unsealed, and all the documents start hitting the docket. And the next day, Jeffrey Epstein is found dead in his jail cell of an apparent suicide. So the document release was sent back to a new federal judge to preside over what's properly unsealed and what should not be properly unsealed. And you can imagine there's all these 
implications for other people whose names may come up, other victims who allegedly were there when the trafficking occurred or were also trafficked who may not want to have their names come out. So there's like a Jane Doe 1 and a Jane Doe 2 and multiple Jane Doe's and also John Doe's. So Judge Prescott, on July 23rd, she held a hearing after, you know, Maxwell's now been charged and says, okay, let's go and have a hearing about what should get unsealed. So she ordered the first tranche of documents to be unsealed last Thursday night. So that's how we get to this testimony. Maxwell was questioned under oath. The government used the testimony as a basis. They say she lied and committed two counts of perjury for lying when she claimed she was never present when Epstein may have been sexually abusing underage girls, nor had she seen anything like it. She was not aware of that activity, illegal activity, nor was present ever witnessing it. So that testimony remains under seal because she went for an emergency motion and asked the Court of Appeals to, again, stop the release Thursday night, the 30th. So that was an 11th hour stop to that part. But the rest of the documents hit the docket starting at like 9.30 on Thursday night. How many documents are already out? 2,000 pages were released in August. So that's when we started first seeing these allegations of possible, you know, Prince Andrew's involvement, some captains of industry were implicated, some senators, some former presidents. Uh, There were allegations, there were flight records of people who were on the plane to Epstein's Island and the Virgin Islands. Pat, what's her legal argument to stop the release of the deposition? Well, I mean, it's it's unusual because the, you know, federal appeals court already ruled it should be unsealed. And then the judge was ruling, she reviewed it and said she didn't see a problem. But now Maxwell is making this uh, argument that, oh, I'm under indictment. So uh, my testimony, if any potential juror reads it, I won't be able to get a fair trial and they'll judge me based on this testimony coming out now. So she won a temporary stay, but the circuit told her they want to hear oral arguments on September 22nd. And in the meantime, Judge Loretta Preska, who is presiding over the unsealing, the federal judge in Manhattan, she's ordered them to get ready for another spate of documents. So on Thursday night, we saw about 50 documents with hundreds of pages of evidence coming out, um, including Jufre's deposition, which she gave under oath. There were excerpts that had been um, under seal, and we saw a little bit more about that. It seems a little disingenuous for Maxwell to want to conceal this deposition in the papers when she tried to get the judge to agree to let her lawyers openly identify her accusers in public. Yeah, that was, it's it's interesting because her civil lawyers in the defamation lawsuit are also part of the team that's defending her in this criminal case. And I guess it makes sense that these lawyers uh, from Denver have great expertise. They know all the what's out there against her. But um, it was an interesting tactic. They wanted to be able to identify the accusers by name. It is called protective orders, and they're becoming really common nowadays for federal prosecutors to say to the lawyers, we'll give you the evidence, but you are prohibited from releasing it to anyone, and you could face 
criminal prosecution if you leak it to someone. So that's a way of keeping things out of anyone else's hands. And it's just up for lawyers' eyes only. But what they wanted to do is they would see the names of the victims and they wanted to say the names of any victim that had possibly in a tweet or on a Reddit posting said, oh, yeah, hashtag me too. I was an Epstein victim or I agree with you. He's a terrible person or whatever. They wanted to be able, they said that was in the public forum and they wanted to be able to name those people. The judge in the criminal case said no. But it's an interesting um, argument. And the thing that was also interesting that Judge Preska stated in her ruling, she was kind of surprised by Maxwell trying to keep her testimony from becoming public. Basically, Preska said when asked about all this activity, she basically denied knowing anything has going on. So like, how bad could it be if she basically doesn't answer questions or denies anything? What did you learn from the documents that were released already? You know, it's it's dizzying and uh, mind-boggling how intense all this, you know, these what these girls went through. I mean, I had read most of the stuff before, but when you go back, one of the things Virginia Jufre wrote was called the Billionaire Playboys Club, and it was like a novel that she serialized or novelized her life and. It was, it's like stunning to, when you read, you know, 16-year-old going to the south of France for Naomi Campbell's birthday party and what, what happens when you go there when all these potentates and wealthy men are there. And she said she was, you know, gobstruck by how amazing she was with all these celebrities wearing a pretty dress, but the night ends up getting her farmed out to a wealthy man that's a friend of Jeffrey Epstein. It's so tawdry and it's, it's really kind of, you know, how Epstein had a lot of connections, a lot of friends. There he is kissing Naomi Campbell. There's Ghislaine Maxwell kissing Naomi Campbell. Hello, friends and getting invited to a birthday party in the south of France in Saint-Tropez. But you can kind of see how these poor kids might have gotten, some of them came from very broken homes or runaways or came from troubled homes. And Epstein and Maxwell allegedly kind of hooked up on those people to lure them into their world. We also saw a very unusual thing, which was Maxwell's lawyers claimed that after, in the last 10 years, Maxwell had not had any communication with Epstein. And they, they proffered that to the judge and asking for bail that she had nothing to do with him and she hasn't spoken to him for 10 years. And what was released by Judge Preska also on Thursday were a series of emails that Epstein traded with Maxwell in January 2015, basically him telling her how to handle this flare-up of of Jufre making these allegations against her of being uh, Epstein's madam. You know, hold your head up high, go to parties. These women are, they're just gossip mongers. Um, It's pretty interesting. They seem to have had a very close relationship, even still, despite what the lawyer claimed that it had been 10 years. Here it was, January 2015, these emails were exchanged. Since the Second Circuit already ordered these documents released before, what are the chances that they'll now say, no, don't release them? Yeah, that's a good, very good question. And what the circuit did 
originally in last year is ordered much of the documents. There was apparently some just uh, some agreements that the documents, certain documents already got released. That's how we got those 2000 last August. But they also directed there were some documents that should go back to the trial judge or a lower court judge, which is how Prescott got it, to determine what should be you know, filtered, what should be redacted, what was anything named anybody that had never come public before. So it really is going to be interesting. I don't know exactly who's on the panel. I I think we know two judges. And um, it remains to be seen if the three judges on on the panel, how they view this latest attempt by her, because they've already and they also have this, the comments Judge Preska's made. She's done the review in camera looking at Maxwell's testimony. And she said, I don't have a problem releasing this. And then she also argued, uh, the judge noted in her ruling, that Maxwell had been charged on July 2nd. And yet her lawyers didn't bother coming to her and saying, oh, no, we have a criminal case now. A halt the release of these documents until like last week. So she's like, what, what took you three weeks to come to me? Um, she called it an 11th hour last ditch effort. Just update us on where Maxwell is right now. And are there any more attempts on her part to get released? So far, we haven't seen anything like that. Um, it's, she's in the Brooklyn lockup in, by the, in Sunset Park by the BQE. It's probably kind of grim. She probably will make another uh, effort. The judge has basically said because of her ties, because she's a you know French citizen, she could go to France and flee, and then she couldn't be extradited. So, um, you know, the next step we have is oral arguments in September. I, I suspect that her lawyers are going to make a full-throated defense of her on both tacks, you know, both the Jufre versus Maxwell lawsuit, civil suit, as well as, you know, making filings. I mean, what we saw was really unusual. It was this effort to the bid by the defense lawyers to name the victims, which is pretty unheard of. And the judge kind of noted that, that victims are, you know, accorded a certain amount of privacy and, you know, it might even seem like a, a attempt to, to quiet the, the women, or the female accusers. A lot of these defense tactics, like naming the alleged victims, seem manipulative and tawdry. And if they're worried about pretrial publicity influencing potential jurors, these tactics certainly wouldn't endear them to potential jurors. Yeah, I I agree with you. It it doesn't look um, particularly endearing for a defendant to go after people who your young women who were you know, 13, 14 years of age. Um, but I guess, you know, we certainly saw that out of Epstein where his lawyers argued that these were uh, transactions with young women who were basically prostitutes. And the judge who had that case raised his eyebrow and said that these were underage girls. So it doesn't matter if they supposedly were engaging in what you call like legitimate transactions or consensual how can it be consensual when they're underage? You don't have consent when you're 15. So um, it remains to be seen. You know, I guess it's a fine, narrow line they're going to have to tread. Maybe they're hoping that they'll just do a full throttle defensive delaying at before trial and then 
maybe the judge won't be endeared, but at least they'll be defending her, their client. And then maybe they're hoping that any potential jurors will forget by the time they go, get to jury selection in July of next year. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Pat. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. A federal appeals court has thrown out Johar Sarnayev's death sentence in the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. A three-judge panel of the First Circuit Court of Appeals ordered a new penalty phase trial on whether the 27-year-old Sarnayev should be executed for the attack that killed three people and wounded more than 260 others. The panel said there was massive media coverage and the trial judge did not adequately screen jurors for potential biases. Sarnayev will spend the rest of his life in prison, but it will be up to the U.S. Attorney's Office to decide whether to appeal the decision or retry the death penalty portion of the case. My guest is Robert Bloom, a professor at Boston College Law School. The appellate court said the jurors weren't properly screened. How so? What problems did they find with the screening? Well, one of the major problems was the use of social media especially Twitters or retwitters or whatever they call it. And apparently one juror tweeted that he called Sanar of garbage. And the judge, who asked a lot of questions about media, didn't really get into the social media. So the appellate court wanted to make sure that the jury, which which decided on sentencing, was fair. And they said that the judge should have done more. The judge did a good bit, but he should have done more to make sure that nobody was using social media or was reading newspapers. In addition, one of the jurors said he didn't stay at home during the time that they were looking. He had a shelter in place. And he apparently said he didn't, but he actually did. So there's some indication of a lack of fairness given the bias of those particular jurors. Can a judge really find out if someone is lying in that respect? I mean, how can a judge monitor social media? Isn't it up to the lawyers, the defense and the prosecution to bring forth some things that might be troubling about a juror? There's just so much out there these days. And what, what's supposed to occur as the jurors are seated is something called wadia. And the judge will get questions from both sides and will ask those questions. There's no, uh, there's very little investigative piece. The lawyers don't know who the jurors are going to be. It's a big pool. This judge also had questionnaires for the jurors, which uh, both attorneys got. So, so there's not an investigative. The investigation comes from asking questions and you hope the jurors are telling the truth. One of the the primary defense arguments was that it was error to even hold the trial in Boston. What did the appellate court say about that? They only focused in on the sentencing hearing. So I guess they concluded that holding trial itself, not the sentencing hearing, by the way, the sentencing hearing is a continuation of the trial. They felt that was okay. Apparently, they, they described the media attention as unrivaled in American legal history. And the O.J. Simpson trial came to mind because with the O.J. Simpson trial, people were watching every minute of it across the country. You're in Boston. Was it a microcosm of that in Boston for this trial? 
Absolutely. Uh, there were news reports daily. And, you know, initially it was the horror of the uh, marathon bombing and, and the capture of Tanara. Almost on a daily basis, there was uh, news media reports uh, about the marathon. So there was a great deal of publicity. Certainly there was all kinds of media retention, TV, radio, a lot of it. If this decision stands, the defense will try to move the case out of Boston again, most likely. So seven years later, is the same bias evident in Boston as it was before? Well, it's obviously less. The appellate court didn't say you can't have it in Boston. They just said, if you decide to have it anywhere, make sure you ask enough questions so that decision makers, the jurors, will act fairly. In a death penalty of voir dire, doesn't that always get you a jury that is perhaps more pro-law than you would ordinarily get because they're able to say, yes, I'd give someone the death penalty. You know, it's, it's more of the notion of considering it. If they say they're adamantly against the death penalty, then obviously they would be challenged and they wouldn't be allowed to sit. On the second time around, what can a judge do to try to ensure that there are unbiased jurors? Well, he certainly can ask more questions about social media. He can ask questions about whether or not somebody was sheltered in place. So they can do a good deal more of that kind of situation. By the way, the judge didn't do a bad job. He had a a long questionnaire in the voir dire just to screen out a bunch of jurors. And then uh, many questions were asked. The voir dire took a while, but there were still some problems, according to the Court of Appeals. So Sernayev's attorneys, in trying to avoid the death sentence, argued that his older brother had orchestrated the attack and influenced his younger brother. Yeah, especially during the the sentencing part of the trial, one of the defense's arguments was that he was under the influence of his older brother. So that the, the relationship with the older brother was certainly an important part uh, of the sentencing uh, piece. So tell us more about the brother. Well, the judge refused to allow the uh, notion that the, the brother was alleged and in being investigated for a 2012 murder. And um, the appellate court thought that was important, especially if one of the arguments that the defense was making that he was under the influence of his brother. And if you're under the influence of your brother and you know that your brother has killed in the past or alleged to have killed in the past, then doesn't that increase the influence piece? And the appellate court thought that the judge made an error in not allowing that information in. Judges are so reluctant to move trials for obvious reasons. But do you think the judge in this case really should have moved the trial? Well, um, you know, a more apt example would probably be the Timothy McVeigh case, where the trial judge did not have the trial in Oklahoma City. Uh, I believe it was moved to Colorado. The marathon in Boston is like the 4th of July 
apple pie and the Red Sox. It's very big here in Boston. So messing with this tradition was upsetting to many uh, in Greater Boston. Some legal observers say that the U.S. attorney might go straight to the Supreme Court with an appeal. Well, if they do that, okay, I'm not sure the Supreme Court will take it because, as you read the decision, there's a lot of facts that are that are utilized by the appellate court. And usually the Supreme Court doesn't want to get involved with all the facts that the uh, uh, appellate court addressed. So my best guess is that it won't be appealed to the Supreme Court. At any rate, if it is appealed to the Supreme Court, and for some reason, which I doubt, the Supreme Court were to take it, then if they overturn the First Circuit, then the death penalty would still be on the table. On the other hand, if they don't appeal it, the U.S. attorney with possibly the Justice Department in Washington being involved can retry scenarios with regard to the sentencing piece automatically. You can do it. The appellate court said they, they threw out the initial one, but they said you could do it again if you wanted. And is it likely that they will do it again? The victims would have to relive this all over again if there's a retrial of, of the uh, penalty phase. There was a letter published uh, at the time of the sentencing phase, or as it was supposed to begin, the Richards family, uh, who lost, a, I believe it was an eight-year-old son, a younger daughter, I think she was five or six, lost the leg. The nature of the letter was, please, don't give him the death penalty, because this thing will be appealed and appealed and appealed, and we want to get it behind us. And what they predicted was absolutely correct. In addition... Greater Boston community, we had to relive the horrors of that day. If the government had taken the death penalty off the table, he would have admitted guilt. He would have gotten a life sentence. He would have been sent for the rest of his natural life to Supermax in Florence, Colorado, which is where he is now. And that would have been that. And we wouldn't have to relive it. Instead, you know, the story of the whole marathon bombing turned into the story after the bombing was about courageous police and bystanders and the medical community and everybody was wearing shirts that said Boston Strong and the Watertown police were wearing shirts calling the Watertown Strong. It was just it was just great to see how the community was coming together. There was an unbelievable memorial right across from the Boston Public Library. It made a horrible story so much better because it ended up being a story of courage and a community coming together. And I just, as a citizen of Boston, as a product of the Boston Public Schools, I don't want to see this, this horrible event relived again. And many of the victims, certainly the Richards family, feel the same way. At least they've expressed that. Some victims don't feel that way. And then you have the... I understand. I, I totally understand that. You know, and I, I wasn't a victim. So I'm not criticized them in the least. I'm largely talking as a citizen of Greater Boston. Do you think that President Trump's 
statements will influence the U.S. attorney in Boston to to retry the penalty phase? The U.S. attorney is answerable to the Justice Department. The Attorney General Barr appears to reflect the sentiments of President Trump. So there's a possibility that he will order Barr, the uh, U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, who, by the way, is a Trump appointment, to redo the sentencing hearing. I think that would probably, although you know, I don't know about the politics of it, I think that probably might be their approach as opposed to appealing to the Supreme Court because, or maybe they would, because that would take a long time. And if they appealed it to the Supreme Court, the election in November would be over by the time they decided it. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Robert Bloom, a professor at Boston College Law School. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.